All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to the Beauty and the Beast Physical Therapy and Strength Conditioning Podcast. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Ross Childs. Welcome back, everyone. It's good to good to have everyone back, and I appreciate everyone who's following the podcast. Yeah, we've had a lot of good feedback, especially about the last couple talking about uh, the knee. We got a ton on the knee, um, a little bit more on the shoulder too, and, and now. So today we're we're working into the hip. Yeah, and I think the important part, again, to understand is we're working through some some of the more common conditions that we would typically see, whether it's in the gym on Adam's part or people that come to see me, and whether I call it something different, you know, Adam Adam deals with it the pretty, pretty much the same way that I do, so we want to talk about kind of what it is, um, how people develop it, but also, at the end, you should have a pretty good idea of what you can do to manage it, you know, and regardless of the fancy diagnosis that you may get... There are always activities, there are always exercises, there are always modifications that we can do to allow you to perform at your best. So uh, again, think about that as we go through today. You know, we're probably going to get off track. We're probably going to talk too much about stuff that really doesn't matter. Um, you know, we do a good job of, of getting off topic. Um, but at the very end, you know, if you take nothing else from this today, you know, this is the hip condition that I may be presenting with. And these are the three things that I can do to start to correct it so that I can perform better. Yeah, and I think that, so we'll, we'll spend a little bit more time working with some specific hip um, <clears throat> conditions. Uh, but the thing to remember too is, and we've talked kind of working around about the hips, hips, I don't know why I stopped with no S, hips quite a bit just in talking about back pain, knee pain, stuff like that. I mean, I don't know what, I, I always ask you what percentage, I don't know another way to put it, but pretty pretty large majority of the time, how often would you say that back pain, knee pain are actually something going on with the hip, whether it's... So outside of an acute traumatic event, right, right, I'd yes. say probably 70% of the time you'll see the hip involved. Right, exactly. So we're not going to go into as much of, of back pain and stuff like that because we've talked about it a lot. But keep in mind too that this is the hip is the biggest joint in the body. It's got the most structures. It's the most supported. It, you know, So that's why a lot of the stuff when you see Ross, you see me, you've got back pain, you'll notice that a lot of times where are we having you work? The hip. Now, that, that kind of brings me to another point, Adam, and, and we've talked before in the past about uh, Gray Cook, you know, the creator of the, the FMS. We, we talk about Mike Boyle quite often, you know, and they were, they were the original creators of the, the mobility stability continuum. So when we really look at the different parts of the body that need to be stable, you know, parts that, you know, really only move in one plane, maybe two, uh, but one plane, just to keep the conversation simple, usually there's a joint above and below that has three degrees of freedom. They move in all three planes. Um, Pretty, pretty readily. Now, when that changes, when one joint changes their original function, the joints above and below have to change that as well. So in the case where we're talking about the hip, the hip is a, a, a and I know we're going to talk about the anatomy more, but at the very least, the, the hip is a ball and socket joint. It's got three degrees of freedom, meaning that it's going to do flexion extension. It's going to move side to side, so abduction. And then we also have rotation where it does internal and external rotation. If the body has to sacrifice that mobility for something, it's going to take it now from the back or the knee. So that's why I've said that usually if there's a back problem, the back is the victim. Mm -hmm. If there's a knee problem, the knee is the victim. So if it's a knee problem, check the hip and the ankle. If it's a back problem, check the thoracic spine 
check the hip. If it's a hip problem, check the knee and the back. I mean, we can't just have, again, outside of an acute traumatic event, everything is tied in together. Hmm. So if someone has significant back pain, it's probably a hip problem, you know, and, and, and we just don't look at that well enough. Yep. You know, and that's, you know, a squat is a great way because you're loading the hip and the back. That's a great way to determine, is it a back problem or not? Having someone go into a squat, yes, this recreates my pain. Well, have them shift off of the painful side. All you're really doing at that point is unloading the hip. So it's a differentiation test. <clears throat> so um, I think I, I enjoy treating hip. I think the hip is, is pretty amazing with what it can do. It's a large weight-bearing joint. And you know, I, I like to think of the hip muscles as the rotator cuff muscles, yeah. you know, so I, I tend to think of it as one and the same. Granted, there's a couple more muscles that we'll talk about, but it's, uh, it, ha- it has to be a mover and a controller, you know, and it's, it's, it has to fine tune certain things, and then you have to be very strong and explosive. So I, I, I think it's a very unique joint. Yeah. I remember, it's funny you said the, the rotator cuff thing. I had never really thought about that until, I think it was a couple years ago, um, Cressy put out a tweet talking about relating the um, the glute to uh, rotator cuff of the hip, and I was like, oh, that's so, it's true. Mm-hmm. I just had never, it's one of those cool things, you never think about it that way until, it's like, oh yeah, that's true, it keeps it from everything sliding forward and all that stuff, yeah, it's I mean, if you really look at the lower extremity versus the upper extremity, you know, you start with, you know, the hip and the shoulder are essentially the same. They're both ball and socket joints, and the elbow and the knee have to be pretty stable. They only move through one relative plane. Uh, the wrist has to be pretty mobile, same as the tail curl joint at the ankle, you know, and then the big toe has to be pretty mobile for push-off, same with the thumb, because that's mm-hmm. how we get thumb opposition. So really the only difference, you know, and even if we think about the bony anatomy, we have the radius and the ulna and the forearm. We have the fibula and the tibia and the lower leg. The only difference is is the, the weight-bearing capacity. Right. One One's a weight-bearing extremity, the other one is not. So, you know, it, it's kind of cool that it's it's all the basic structures and the basic components. It's just one's built to weight-bear, the other right. one's not. You know, right. and that's, that's also the cool thing as well. So, now, the reason that I, well, one... People have been asking about different body parts, so that's why we keep doing this. But I'm always curious from from my standpoint, you get a lot of people that come in, you know, and, and they have these aches and pains and whatever it is. So let's say you get someone in day one, you're asking about injury history, and they say, you know, I really don't have this injury history, but I've noticed every time I sleep on my side, my hip hurts. You know, what's take me through your thought process when you hear that, and then what type of assessments do you do with them after that? And what type of exercises might you give and might you avoid? Uh, so when it's something like that, I'm usually doing like our kind of our normal things, you know, foam rolling, treating it with some sort of manual just to see if, A, is there is there actually any any pain when doing those, those uh, I keep wanting to say movements, but exercises, whatever, however you want to describe them. Um, what the hell is that? Not too sure. Sorry, got that easily distracted. Um, we may have a Starbucks lawsuit coming up. I don't know what the hell that is. Oh, it's a coffee bean. Oh, thank God! All I right. thought it was a bug. All right, oh, yeah, me too. All right, God. I'm glad it we was got that. Delicious. <laughs> okay. Anyways, uh, yeah. So, um, soft tissue stuff. If it's something that hurts them consistently. 
you know what? I, it's hard to say because, to be honest with you, I don't run into that that often. Um, I'll have somebody that after, like, you know, a few weeks, if they're overdoing it, may say, okay, my hip hurts a little bit when I, I sleep on it. But, um, you know, uh, my fiance, she ran into that for a little while, too. She couldn't sleep on a, cert- a hip for a certain side, and a lot of it had to do with tightness. It was getting in there with a lacrosse ball. It was um, stretching to increase the, you know, the... the I tend to treat it the same way that I would a shoulder. Create or decrease the tightness, create joint capsule um, space. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the same place I start. You know, and it's very rare when people come into the clinic and they say, I have hip pain. Or even you'll probably see this too. You know, I have pain in my hip. Mm-hmm. Where do people usually point? Usually, it's usually the front or the just barely to the side. Yeah, the front or the side. Yeah. Which, anatomically speaking, that's not the hip. Right. The hip, when we really think about it, if we take away the soft tissue, when someone comes in and says, I have groin pain, Mm. that's the actual femoral acetabular joint. So we're going to get into the anatomy real quick. But the second that someone comes in and says, I have hip pain, they point to the outside, in my head, like, it's not fucking hip pain. Right, yeah. That anatomically, and we'll go over that in just a minute, is your greater trochanter. That is the top most lateral portion of the femur. And that's that's built for muscle attachments. Because um, I guess we'll just get into the hip anatomy right now. You know, when we look at it, you know, the socket is very similar to, to the glenoid but in the shoulder, but it's called the acetabulum. It's a lot deeper. It has a, a bigger um, glenoid or uh, labral lip. And that's going to create more stability. Um, We also look at, you know, just the effects of gravity and the pressure, uh, the joint geometry. It's a very stable joint. You know, it's it's not common that you're going to dislocate it. And then you have the femoral head that sits inside the socket. And then you have the femoral neck, which is what attaches the leg bone to the femoral head. So if people have, there's two types of of fractures that people will get. They'll either have the anatomic neck or the, or the surgical neck. The surgical neck is right where I'm discussing. The anatomical neck is a little bit lower. Um, but once we get just south of that, that's now we, we have two trochanters, just like we have two velocities in the shoulder. Uh, we have two trochanters and, and that is really going to determine, you know, do we have like the, um, iliopsoas attaches to the lesser trochanter. Then we have all of our hip muscles come over and attach into the greater trochanter. Um, and then we have our quad muscle, which comes to the front. The rectus femoris attaches onto the pelvis. Um, same thing with the uh, ASIS, the uh, oh, blanking right now. Sartorius attaches there, and TFL is right next to it. So there's there's just a lot going on there, and they're big, dense, thick, robust muscles. And there's also muscles that go from the hip down to the knee. So now it's it's supporting the knee, or it's at least controlling it. So um, there's a lot that can go on there. And and really, if you think about the activities that we do in everyday life, or the average person, I'm sitting on my ass, smushing my hip joints all day long. You know, now when I'm in a flex <coughs> position. I'm lengthening the tissue. It's it's in a stretched position. And then if I do that over and over and over again, that basically causes an elongated eccentric load, which if that's the case, what do we know about eccentric load on a tendon? Yeah. It's difficult. It's tough on the tendon. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you reduce blood flow to the area. There's there's hypovascularization and tendons and ligaments have poor blood supply to begin with, so it degrades over time. You know, it the body will make it thicker. And it will make it less extensible to protect you. 
And then what does that do to the muscle? Well, now the muscle gets tighter quicker. It can't disperse the force. Then you end up squishing the bursa underneath, which the bursa are just fluid-filled sacs that reduce friction. And then next thing you know, ouch, I can't sleep on my hip. You know, there's two main bursa we have directly in the back. It's the greater trochanteric bursa. And then we have one a little bit further down, which is the uh, gluteal femoral bursa. Um, and then both of those, when they become irritated, just literally become pain in the ass. And that's what most people will feel. So, uh, again, there's a lot more to the, the hip anatomy, that, but that's just a, a basic overview. But, you know, for, for the listeners, if you point to the outside of what we think is the hip, it's not a hip problem. If you have groin pain, that's a hip problem. You know, so just understand in, in anatomical context what, what we're trying to work with here. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of, <clears throat> sorry, I mean, and again, we come back to the same thing. How much of this, I mean, well, we're going to talk about some some things coming up that are not soft tissue related. They're hard blocks, they're bony blocks, they're legitimate um, skeletal changes that occur that can cause problems, but most of the time it comes down to soft tissue. Correct. Tightness, you know, like you said, eccentric load, constant concentric load all that sort of stuff it all depends on you know where you're tight where you're loose how you how much you sit what you do all that kind of stuff well and all those activities again come down to to the habit of Mm -hmm. you know we've we've always talked about sitting is not bad it's the habit of sitting right that's bad now i know we said we wouldn't talk about the the knee and and the back and stuff like that but for for a second let's just take a step back and you know what's Let's say someone comes in with an anterior pelvic tilt. Mm -hmm. So, and for those of you listening, that's an an accentuated curve in the low back. You know, what, what happens to the pelvis in a case like that? It's tilted, tilted backwards, essentially. Yeah. So the tailbone comes up towards the ceiling. Now, if we really think about that for a moment, what has to happen to the acetabulum on top of the, the femur? It's going to shift. It's going to shift. Shift forward. Right. So now you automatically limit your hip range of motion. Right. Now, if your hip range of motion is not moving the way that it should, then all of a sudden you're going to start borrowing from the knee. So now we have to start to look at, okay, is the knee problem caused by the hip, which is caused by the back? Is it vice versa? But just based off of the pelvic position, the low back position alone, we can start to look at why the hip is, is causing a significant problem, you know, and... Again, let's take a look at that anterior pelvic tilt. You know, now the, the butt bones, the ischial <clears throat> tuberosity, are going to be raised up towards the ceiling, and that pulls excessive strain on the hamstring. You know, what's the most common thing we hear from people? Oh, it was, it was, yeah. My hamstrings are tight. Right. Nope. But I stretch them all the time. Yep. Well, you can stretch them till you're blue in the face. It's not going to do shit for you. It's because they're already stretched to begin with, and based on our length tension curves, we know that muscles are strongest at their 50% mark, you know, where there's 50% overlap between the actin and the myosin. So if these muscles are already stretched to begin with, you're, you're now pulling tension like a guitar string. Hmm. So yes, there's going to be tightness, but do we want to take a muscle that's already stretched and stretch it out even more? Ooh. Exactly. So. I'll tell people right away, stop stretching your hamstrings. Yeah. And, and then for most people, they're like, this guy's fucking nuts. And it's like, no, 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 hear me out. We need to tip everything back to center. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and we can go for days. I mean, they're, they're just 
study after study, and, and that will say an increased lordotic curve has no correlation with back pain. And they've actually shown that people with no curve in their back, so um, kyphosis mm-hmm. or flattening, those are the people that are more likely to have back pain. But again, to me, it comes down to the habit of if someone stays in an anterior pelvic tilt all day long, mm-hmm. now we're into the lower cross syndrome. Right. You know, now we're into the hip flexors become too tight. You know, and, and really, if we think about if the hip flexors are too tight, it now puts us into a hip flexed position, which automatically is going to limit our hip extension. So now our butt muscles and our hamstrings aren't going to work the right way. Right. If our low back muscles are now shortened, because they're creating lumbar extension, that means that our core muscles have to shut down because they're being extended. So again, whether the curvatures of our back actually create back pain or not, I don't care about that. It's the habit of, you know, if we have abnormal amounts of stress on healthy tissue, our body breaks down, you know, and then the other end of the spectrum. If we have normal amounts of stress on on unhealthy tissue, it can break down. Now, if we have normal amounts of stress on normal tissue, our body adapts and becomes resilient. You know, and that's that's what we have to try to get across. You know, and there are circumstances where we can have quote unquote unhealthy tissue and give normal stress and it creates a healing response. You know, that's those are the, the tendinopathies of the world, things like that. You know, so we won't get too much in the specifics, but um, we just have to remember everything that we do has an effect, you know, and, and if we get into the same quote unquote bad habits, we just reinforce that bad habit over and over and over and over and over again. And it takes a long time to break out of it. So it, we got to get the core back to center or neutral. We got to get the hamstrings to work the way that they should. We got to get the muscles that are overworking to calm, calm the F down. But it's, it, it's a lot to do that. And this is why, and I'll go on a little, a short little soapbox here, but this is why your warm-up, your soft tissue work, that stuff is so damn important. It frustrates me beyond belief. Two things in, in classes. Usually the first one is when... I have people that are consistently missing the warm-up where we do all the soft tissue work, all the stuff that gets you kind of ready to go, back to neutral. And when I have people that leave early during our cool-down where we're doing stretching or some other sort of soft tissue work to help continue to increase that. And that's exactly why. So, like, let's say that you have really tight lateral hip muscles. Um, You come in cold, so... Already there, you've got one side. I mean, it it's, works the same way on one side of the hip versus the other as it does front to back. If your back, if your lower back muscles are engaged and making that huge arch, like Ross just said, the core muscles have to turn off because they're the antagonist. The same thing happens in the hip. If one side is turned completely on, the other side has to turn off and extend, or try to do its job way more extended than it should be. If you're not resetting that structure, you're just coming in cold with one side turned on and one side turned off rather than both of them being closer to neutral, and then you load that, all you're doing is continuing to strengthen that pattern. 
If you have knee problems and you never work your quads and you just then go uh, work your quads, meaning with soft tissue, you never loosening them and getting them back to a more neutral position because that affects your knees, your hips, all that sort of stuff. Then you load that with a goblet squat or some other form of weighted squat. You're just going to continue to reinforce that same pattern. Oh, and, and it just becomes a uh, stronger dysfunction. Right. You know, and, you know, I, I heard someone say before, and, and Adam and I and, and Coach Dylan, we were just talking about PTs and strength coaches and how some of them get on their soapbox and, you know, don't do this, don't do that. If you do this, you're an idiot, you're an asshole. And, and I saw someone saying sometime, well, if you move right, you shouldn't have to do mobility work at all. And, and I heard that statement, and I'm like, what an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Because that doesn't take into effect. We don't have 53 hours a day to be working on appropriate movement patterns. Right. It's just not realistic. You know, and, and to say that moving, moving normal will take away mobility restrictions, no, because you don't know what's causing it to begin with. Like, life gets in the way. Injury gets in the way. Right. I don't care how many t- – if. I've sprained my ankle. You grew up playing soccer. Think of the oh, number yeah, of times yeah. oh, you, I've you rolled oh, so it. many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you rolled yeah. so many times you lost count. Right. Oh, yeah. Now, is your ankle ever going to be normal again? Absolutely not. And your calves, you have big calves to begin with. Your calves are probably even tighter because it knows, hey, I'm going to roll my ankle again. If you just leave those calves alone for the rest of your life, they're going to build up that that stickiness, the the guarding. And eventually, it's probably going to cause an issue down the road mm-hmm. because it's over-tightening. So the only way you're going to get through there, and we've talked about this before, and I've beat up on your calves multiple times, oh, yeah. you have to really dig down to those deep, dark places to get that to fully loosen up. Yeah. You know, It's really tissue remodeling at its finest. And it doesn't matter what body part we're talking about, the, the hips for this matter, you know, the, if it's trying to protect your back. You know, if we really think about the muscles in the hips, so if I'm staring at someone with mine, looking at their butt, the big butt muscle is called the glute max. We have a muscle just under that that's kind of up into the side called the glute medius, which is the knee controller for the most part. Then we have the glute minimus that sits underneath that. Then kind of underneath the glute max and more towards the center of your butt is the piriformis, which goes basically perpendicular to the ground. And then we have smaller rotators called the uh, gemelli. And then there's another one, obturator internus and internus. Um, and then uh, quadratus femoris. One in there that sounds like that, but that that's that's a lot of layers, yeah. you know. So if I'm merely just taking a foam roller and just skimming over the top of my butt, I'm not doing anything. It's basically just a waste of time. You know, you, you need to get in there, like really loosen that stuff up. But it goes back to the word that you said before: reset. Whether it's a mechanical reset, whether it's a, a neuromuscular reset. Something is resetting. You're giving yourself a moment in time where it's like alt-control-delete. What do I need to do now to reset this? And then eventually your body kicks in and says, no, I'm more comfortable with this bad pattern. And then every time you reintegrate that new pattern, the body starts to phase out the bad one. You know, So if we constantly walk without knee extension, I just become good at walking without knee extension. Now if I start to practice knee extension during walking, 
all of a sudden my body says, hey, this may be something that Adam wants me to do over and over again. Let me become better at it. Or let me improve my hip extension. Or let me not use my hip flexors during walking, which we shouldn't anyways because it's more of a natural recoil than an active process. So um, I just think you made a, a great point when you said resetting. Because no matter what we do, it's really all PT is. You, mm. you described PT in, in four words. <laughs> I mean, really, the only difference is, can I get someone out of pain right. to reset them? We take someone out of pain that's no different than what you just described. The difference is, I'm in 26th grade now, and <laughs> <laughs> you, you didn't need to be. So, um, But, but that, that was a great point that I just wanted to point out. Yeah, I, I mean, I've always said that I, I, as I've kind of, I think about it like setting something in concrete. You... You know, you have the, the liquid concrete, whatever, you pour it into the, the mold, whatever it is, and you, like, you get everything centered, which is your reset, that's your soft tissue, that's getting everything into the position that it should be in. We keep talking about should be perfect posture. There's pretty, there's no such thing as perfect posture. Like, so, <laughs> when you hear somebody say, your posture's bad, or you think that I have back pain because I have bad posture... There's no perfect posture or whoever this asshole is that you're talking about saying normal. How did you put it? Normal, normal, normal uh, movement, normal movement. Yeah. Basically takes, takes away mobility deficits. What the fuck is normal movement? I mean, that's, it was just such an asinine comment. Yeah. Right. Just, it's way, makes way too many, way too many assumptions in, in one post to, to get that point across. But regardless, you get everything set. And then the concrete sets it. That's your strength training. Everything that gets the post, the whatever you're putting in concrete into the right position, that's your soft tissue, that's your PT, that's the stuff that gets you into the right position. And the strength training is the concrete hardening. And I mean over time. Yeah. You know? Well, and again, it just you're creating that solid foundation. And then as long as the foundation is set, you can keep building up. Right. You know, and, and that's really all we're all we're trying to do from here. You know, I think from a movement standpoint, you know, if we we look at the different motions of the body and we can go front to back, side to side, and we can rotate, you know, 3D. I think think part of the problem why we get a lot of these conditions is because people only work in the sagittal plane. Mm -hmm. You know, think about a hip flexor strain, you know, and oftentimes that's because the hip flexor is already being used. Right. And then they're using it again and it causes that strain. It overloads it. It's very, very rare that I see people with weak hip flexors. Yeah. You know, inefficient hip flexors from working too much, sure, but it's very rare. So when I see people strengthening the hip flexors, to me, it's a reintegration exercise of the hip flexor with the core, Hmm. you know, or at least it should be. Um, You know, a lot of people will come in and say, you know, I'm a runner, run a lot, you know, I do my lunges, I do my my squats. and I, I don't understand why I'm getting my calf cramps. I don't understand why I'm getting this this hip pain. It's like, well, what do you do side to side? Well, nothing. It's like, well, you're so good at going forward and back mm-hmm. that you've completely neglected your side to side motions, which those are your controllers. It's just, it's a non-negotiable. It's just the way that the body was made. I mean, think about what are some common lateral exercises that you like to give? I mean, just like simple ones, band walks, lateral squats, which lateral lunges. Yeah. Um, 
you know, you get more into the functional ones in terms of hip stability, pal-off presses, side bridges, single it's single leg dead single leg deadlifts are still kind of a front to back exercise, but it engages so much um hip stability that yep. it's great for that. <laughs> and would you say those exercises you just rattle off, can you readily find those on Google? Not nearly as easy as all the other ones. You you ask somebody what a lateral squat is or a lateral lunge is, they're Wait, you ask somebody where to lunges, like a full regular lunge, and they'll show you. Pretty yeah. much anybody can. Yeah, and that, and that's because you know, most people just they want the sexier exercise. Mm. So it's like exercises for runners, squats, lunges. You know, those are the things that are going to pop up. You know, but I, I think, and I don't want to say athletes in general, but people who work out. You know, especially people that design their own programs, for that matter. Um, they they only train the muscles they can see, mm-hmm. and then they only train front to back because that's the easiest motion to go. Yeah. So you know it's that, the motion most people know. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, well, it's what we do in everyday life. Right, right. We sit right, facing right. forward. We walk facing forward. We drive facing forward. Yep. You know, it's very easy. Now, when you're designing the programs here, what percentage of it, or what what thought goes into your head about the different planes of movement? A ton. Know? I'm, and it's hard because, you know, you, if you, in a perfect world where I could get, you know, hit right an hour and a half to train somebody, it's easy to get all easy in quotes to get all that in. But yeah, it trying to think about, okay, a unilateral quad dominant, a unilateral hip dominant, a bilateral quad dominant, a bilateral hip dominant, a lateral hip related exercise, a lateral quad hip dom, whatever you lateral lunge is kind of like a mix of the two, but yeah, whether it's, you know, lateral squats, lateral lunges, um, skaters, hide and jumps, whatever. There's 50,000 names for the same yeah. exercise. But, um, you know, lateral band walks, just, um, you know, even little things like we'll do, um, I call them pinwheel rotations, but it's the 90-90 internal-external rotation yeah. where we're rotating from side to side. What do they what are they? What are, what are they called? Like chin boxes. Mm. I mean, we do them a little bit better than your average, just like flop from side to side. But that's a lateral exercise for those hip rotators and hip stabilizers yeah. and all that stuff. And I just want to point out for anyone who works out here at Get Fit, this is the shit that Adam has to think about when he's designing the program. <laughs> so. You know, other than his rugged good looks, I mean, he is under constant stress trying to make the best workout program. And and I would I would and this is nothing against just your your average trainer because I know a lot of good ones. Mm-hmm. But when someone is a true strength and conditioning coach, and I'll ask you this in just a moment, but it's very hard because you're always on that next quest to make the best program ever. Now, the only problem is when you do that, if you try to make the best program, what usually ends up happening? You, you miss stuff. You miss stuff. You miss stuff or you add in way too fucking oh, much. Oh, yeah, or it gets way too complicated. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and, exactly. then, and then they start saying, you know, well, the best program that you're on is the one that you're currently not doing. Right. So then you've got to pare down the program. Right. You know, and, and think about in your early years of, of programming, mm-hmm. you know, and then compare it to now yeah. you know probably now is a lot more simplistic compared to way back oh when. yeah i was hoping you were going to yeah. say that oh yeah less is more yes 
you know, and then you, you start to manipulate the variables. And I know we're going off track. We'll, we'll get back on in just a moment. But, you know, you've learned that manipulating the variables, sets, tempo, mm -hmm. uh, reps, weight, um, the rest period, rest intervals in between, work to rest ratio, those are the intervals that really matter. Yeah. You know, is there one best exercise? No. Is there one best rep scheme? No. You know, is there one best work to rest ratio? Depends on your goal. Right, but, exactly. But for the most part, you know, if you're doing, you know, 15 seconds on, 45 seconds off one night, well, next program, do 45 seconds on, 15 seconds off. And maybe you just change the motor pattern. Maybe right. you go hip dominant to, to knee dominant so that you're not overloading it. So, um, you know, designing a strength and conditioning program is really no different than designing a PT program. Now, now I don't necessarily have to get to the point of performance because by the time we get there, I send them to you. That's the nice part. You know, I just have to make sure, do we have a solid functional foundation and then you get to load strength on top of that. But it's really, for me, it's do they have full range of motion? Do they have functional strength? And then do they have the ability to load work capacity on top of that? Even if it's low, do they have the ability to get there? Because we need that to have performance. So, um, you know, is there, is there that, or are there the components of can they participate can they play, meaning that they're almost at 100%, and then can they perform at 110%? So, you know, hopefully we get them that that point so then you can take over. That's really the the key for that that conversation there. But, you know, we'll get we'll get back on track for, for the more common hip conditions now. Um, but just understand this is what it, Adam goes through when designing a program. When someone comes in with a hip condition, these are all the things that we need to think about. Even though we may not say these things out loud, there's a, there's a lot that goes into it. And even if we give you something simple, it's because we've failed many of times giving too much. You know, and we've, we've learned over time that less is more. So that's, that's kind of the cool part. Yeah. Now, one of the more common things that, that people will come in, you know, and we have, you know, the first two are, are I think, kind of one and the same in this setting. But when someone has... And we'll talk about a, a true hip dislocation. When someone has a true hip dislocation, usually there's some type of traumatic event mm -hmm. that was that happened, or they have osteopenia, or you know there was some type of structural instability that caused that. You know, I've seen more people than not um, a car accident. Mm -hmm. You know, their, yeah. their femur jams into the dashboard and snaps the pelvis. Yeah, things along those lines. But how many, how many times have you heard people say, I have this snapping on the outside of my hip. It's, it's almost, it almost feels like it's going to dislocate. Yeah, I, pretty often. Yeah. I'm not you know, crazy, but if, certainly more than like an actual yeah. dislocation. Yeah, and, you, and for you, sure. you've probably heard those people say the actual terms. It feels like it dislocates. You've probably heard that once or twice. And I hear that quite often, and, and you put hip snapping. Now, there are a couple different areas, and when, when people point to the outside of their hip, or even the front for that matter, mm. and they say, I have a hip dislocation, it's probably snapping hip syndrome. You know, and there's multiple reasons why that can occur. That can be due to the iliopsoas can be getting, getting snapping over the, the head of the femur. Um, it can be actually the TFL is a little too tight, which is the muscle just to the outside. And it can be just where the IT band connection is coming over the greater trochanter. Now, based off of what you know from everything that we've talked about, 
if something's snapping, what's going on? I, I it's hit. It's it's something is out of position, so it's hitting something else. For yeah. lack of a better way to, yeah. for lack of a less a more scientific and, way and to put it, what do we think is out of position? Do we think the actual hip is out of position? No. Usually, just the the head of the you know head of the humerus, head of the femur, whatever, is slightly yeah. off in some direction. And we're not. T- I'm not talking out of the joint. I mean, just yeah. like millimeters, millimeters to the yeah. left or right. Exactly. And then that millimeters of movement is going to change how the muscles in the front, the back, the sides, the top, the bottom, how it changes. And usually, it's due to that increased tightness because mm-hmm. now the body has to readjust, and it creates that tightness to create stability. You know, and when we talk in terms of stability think control you know the body has to control this position so then you start getting that hip flexor that becomes too tight you start getting that tfl that start acting like a hip flexor you start getting the the hip muscle and the tfl are too tight so it starts snapping the it band because now it's pulling back like a bow and arrow you know and that's that's more often than not why i see a snapping hip syndrome so what can we do about it you know that that's really the big thing from my standpoint, I need to go in and check the joint. I need to check the joint mobility. Whenever we look at motion, we always have what are called accessory movements in a joint. The rolling glide, the spin. Um, we can't see them, but you know we as clinicians can feel them. What we're more concerned with is the uh, what's called the arthrokinematics, where the actual movement you see is called the osteokinematics. So I need to identify that. If that is normal, then we start to conclude that's probably going to be a soft tissue problem. You know, it's it's very rare that I will tell people, you know, hey, this is a condition that I think it's appropriate for a hip replacement. You know, in order for people to have that, they need to have, you know, morning pain, actually pain all day long. It affects their, their daily life. Um, they can't bend their hip past 90 degrees. They have no hip internal rotation or maybe five degrees at the most, and it causes pain. Um, and that may lead to back pain as well. But outside of that, it's a soft tissue restriction. You know, So then I will usually tell people, foam roll the upper quad, because usually that hurts. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, when's the last time you foam rolled the proximal quad, the upper quad near the hip flexor? It's been a little bit. We've, we do it sometimes a yeah. little bit, yeah. And, and you gotta think how the muscle tapers down, mm-hmm. and it's very tender right there. Yep. You get past the mid-muscle belly in the quad, and you come to the upper portion, that sucker hurts and it's more thin skin so it's a lot more sensitive you know then you got to think about the adductors your groin muscles you know a lot of them attach right to the pubic bone if there's any type of a hip dysfunction at all the groin muscles are going to tighten themselves down how often do you foam roll your groin honestly probably not as much as i should okay and what what percentage of people do not foam roll their groin at all. Oh, a lo- I would guarantee a large portion. I, I, 80%? Yeah, oh yeah. A lot of people, it hurts. Or they don't even think of it. Right. I will be the first, and you can probably back me up on this, not so much in the early, in the like the first 50% of the groin muscle, but once you start to get into the meat of the groin mm-hmm. or up in the tendon, yep. it fucking kills. It does. And that's yep. why a lot of people don't do it. For mm-hmm. those of us, it's like, I know it hurts. I'm going to do something else that doesn't hurt. But it crosses the hip joint. If we have compression and tightening, what do we, or, or let me say, and you guys can't see, I'm using my hands to, to draw a shortening scenario. So if I shorten my adductors like this and the hip is right in between, you know, what's going to happen to the hip joint? 
narrows. Narrows yeah. it off. It closes it off. Right. So then we lose range of motion. You know, and then we lose range of motion in the joint. And because the muscle on the inside is not doing what it's supposed to, that's now going to affect the yeah. muscle on the outside. Now the controller goes to sleep. Then we have to have something else that's going to control it. So now the hip flexor is going to take over. Now the glute's going to be dysfunctional. Now it's just a 3D problem. You know, but it's a movement dysfunction. It's not an anatomical structural deformity, and we have to we have to understand that. Um, a lot of these impairments that we find are the same whether we're talking about snapping hip syndrome or bursitis. You know, and oftentimes people come in with a true bursitis. Now, if anyone has had a true bursitis where the actual bursa sac is inflamed. It's very, very painful, and you actually have almost like this bubbling at the, at the side of your hip. So when people come in, say, I've had this problem for two years. I can't sleep on my hip. They tell me it's bursitis. I've had cortisone. It doesn't help. Newsflash. It's not fucking bursitis. Happened to me in high school. Yeah. Looking back, I'm like, well, now I obviously know what it was, but yeah. Yeah. What happened to me? Cortisone injections. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work. The first couple of weeks, it might have worked. But if it's years on end at that point, it's not going to help. It, it, I just That's just how they want to treat it. Now, if you were to take a lacrosse ball back then, oh, yeah. if you would just mash the tissue and focus on hip mobility, that would have cleaned it up. You know, And you may even notice like in, in your own programs, when you're doing more squat heavy stuff, it may come back and you don't even, you, you know, you didn't do necessarily anything to damage it. Right. But your body's still tightening down those same patterns. So, so that's that's the unfortunate part. But whether we're looking at, again, snapping hip or the hip bursitis, hip bursitis is caused from the tight muscles. The tight muscles then reduces the hip range of motion. The hip range of motion reduction can cause low back or knee pain. So as you can see, these are just typical patterns. All we do is just give fancy names for it. But the dysfunction's the same. Right. You know, and, and, and again, you know, if we were to, to look at the same person who comes in, just take a postural observation, we'd probably guess the same dysfunctions right away. You know, you'd probably say it in slightly different terms than I would, but we're we're getting to the same piece of the pie. And and people don't don't understand that. We have to maintain our muscle pliability. So foam roll, foam roll, foam roll. When the foam roll doesn't do it anymore, switch to a lacrosse ball. You gotta dig into the butt muscles as deep as you can. Now, if you do not have a large amount of gluteal tissue, you do run the risk of hitting your sciatic nerve. I was wondering if that's where you were gonna go next. I was gonna ask you about that. There's only been two individuals that I've ever known to actually irritate the sciatic nerve, but they really didn't have a lot of gluteal tissue to begin with. So they basically had a flat butt. But if you have any type of uh, robustness to your backside, you are not hitting that nerve. I mean, you've, you've seen some of the needles that I use, 75 millimeter needles, right. and I'm going right down to the pelvic bone on most of these individuals when I needle their, their butt, and I've, I've never hit the nerve. Yep. So if I'm not doing that with a needle that's being inserted into the butt, you're not going to do it with a lacrosse ball. I, I just... It's like the people that say, don't, don't foam roll the IT band. Is it going to spontaneously fucking combust? No. Like, I can drive over your IT band with the car. Right. And it's probably still not going to break. Your femur <laughs> will snap before the IT band will. Yeah. Uh, like, 
let's use some fucking common sense. Right. It, it, it annoys me when, when people say that because it just makes us sound like we're the biggest mm-hmm, babies. <laughs> um, it, it just makes us sound like we're, we're the weakest species ever and we're just going to crumble. Right. And that's just not the case. We're very, very resilient and we have to remember that. Now, once we loosen it up, and, and, and actually, I'll get you talking more because I'm, I'm talking way too much today, as always. You know, what's the, let's say you have someone go through all the soft tissue stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, what's, what's the next goal for them now? What, what do you have them go through? Full range. Can I get full range of motion? Yeah, full range. So, and how do you go about doing that? Let's say someone comes in with tight glutes and you find mm-hmm. that out. You have them foam roll, lacrosse ball. Oh, it feels looser. Now, what are you going to prescribe for them? squats, lunges, something that something that puts them through some sort of hip range of motion. Exactly. And we want to try to maximize it. You know, and even if we have to modify that. So mm-hmm. for the people that say, "Oh, I don't like I don't like lunges or I don't like squats, it hurts." How can you modify a squat to make it more user-friendly? Take take um, pressure off like TRX squats, band uh, something, you know, we we use them sometimes in here. You put a band up on the rack and they hold on to it so it it actually decreases, essentially decreases their body weight, for lack of a better way to put it. Yeah. But it assists them up and down so they can get through full range of motion without cre- having to create so much tension or, yeah, yeah things like that. Wall sits. Yep. And granted, that's not the same, you know, necessarily full range of motion, but. No, but it's still going to, it's going <laughs> to be an increased stress to the right. area. You know, I'd still say that's certainly appropriate, you know. We need full range of motion. I mean, even if someone said, listen, I can't really do TRX squats. Mm-hmm. Well, why can't we put them into a child's pose? Yep. Right. Yep. A, a child's pose yep. is a, basically a deconstructed squat. Yep. You know, or can I have them lay on their back and pull knees to chest without lifting their pelvis right off the ground? That's an unweighted squat position. And we're still just teaching that, you know. So can I put them basically butt against the wall? feet up on the wall and have them sit into that position. Maybe I have them do some isometrics with hip A, B, and A, D duction. Maybe I just have them focus on pelvic tilting in that position. But now all of a sudden we go from, oh, I can't squat to, well, I've just given you five different squat variations that we can do to progress you to that point. Now, one of the exercises that I give quite often is a goblet squat. Can Mm -hmm. you, I know you're a fan of goblet squats too, so can you just speak to the power of a, of a goblet squat, why you use it, the benefits of it? Um, just why do you think it's good? I think it's good because it forces more true hip movement. It forces more true hip movement because it locks down. Assuming that you're not you know, somebody who's big and strong and grabbing a 10-pound weight, it forces core synchronization, however you want to put it. It makes your core turn on. You know, so then when you get into those deeper depths, it's harder for you to do anything funky with your hips. Um, that's why I like it more often than not that, and it offsets you so you can get a little bit lower. The fact that you're basically increasing the weight to the front side of your body helps take the um, balance. I know it sounds weird to talk about balance when you're talking about a bilateral squat, but people struggle getting full depth because it's hard to it's hard to explain, but because they're they're not weighted. There's no external load. Exactly. You know, and that's so I have a lot of people that will come in, they'll squat, their trunk lean is ugly. They mm-hmm. just basically their chest is is facing the ground and they say it hurts in my hip. 
Okay. So now I give them the kettlebell or a dumbbell and they're holding it in, in front. And for anyone who's listening, you don't know what a goblet squat is. It's just a front loaded squat using a dumbbell or preferably a kettlebell. Now, once I give them that kettlebell, all of a sudden the squat normalizes and they can get past 90 degrees, no hip pain. That instantly tells me it's, it's not a hip joint problem. It's a stabilization slash control problem. We can call it core if we want to. I don't care yeah, what you yeah. call it. You know, but that it, it's a it's a sequencing issue, and really all we did by loading them up with the weight is we put them in the, the best starting position possible to complete that sequence of of uh, movements that needed to occur. So dorsiflexion, knee flexion, hip flexion, whatever it may be. Um, so for me, a goblet squat is a great way to screen people right away because if they instantly improve their squat, great. It's it's not a joint problem. You know, we need to work on stabilization, you know, and that's, I think it's it's too good of an exercise to not do with people. And I think a lot of people are surprised. They'll do a goblet squat. They go deeper than they ever have before and they don't even realize it. And right. then you're like, holy, did you see how low <laughs> yeah. you got? And they're like, no, I, I didn't realize it. Well, their body's not used to it. You know, and we'll, we'll get them there. It's like, all right, now can we do that without the weight? And that would be the, the, the cool part. So... Now, we talked about some common conditions that really don't matter. You know, it's just fancy names. You know, some more conditions that, that people will come in that I think are a little more challenging to treat. It's called femoral acetabular impingement, or FAI for short. And there's two types of, of FAI that we have to be um, considerate of. Now, and there can be other FAI from hip flexor strains, tendinopathies, Things along those lines, but that kind of goes along with snapping hip syndrome, uh, the ones that we're less concerned with. But when we're dealing with a closing angle dysfunction, we're more so talking about what's called a pincer impingement or a cam impingement. So we want to think of it in terms of pincer impingement is when there's bony growth on the socket. So basically it's closing off and it's pinching the femoral head. With a cam impingement, there's actually extra bony growth on the femoral head so it slams into the socket. Most people have both, and most people with some type of an FAI. Now, that's an instant where there's a true structural deformity. Can we get around it without surgery? There are instances. You probably have to, you probably have to change their squat pattern. Mm -hmm. You probably have to change their lunge pattern. You probably have to create more external rotation at the hip. You probably have to treat, um, teach them how to actually laterally glide the hip more. Um, they have to keep up with hip mobility drills. Soft tissue is a must, um, only because anytime they close off the inner aspect of the joint, it's just bone on, it, it's basically bone on bone. Yeah. And that's one instance where I'm saying it is truly bone right. on bone. You know, that you, you really can't get around it. You know, and oftentimes they'll have some type of an anterior pelvic tilt associated with it because now that closes off the, the joint. Um, and it's painful and it's consistent. You know, every single time they squat, lunge, ouch, there it is. You know, there, there's really no time, even if they're laying on their back and I move their leg passively, I'm still probably going to pinch them mm -hmm. just because it's a, it's a structural deformity. Um, so those ones, I'm not saying I rush them off to surgery but I've seen successful outcomes with surgery. It, it's, it's very hard. 
it's hard to change a movement pattern when it, when there's a true structural deformity because this is a case where structure is going to dictate function. Right. I think it's it's important to remember too that when we're because the last few times we've talked about like bone on bone doesn't doesn't mean surgery doesn't mean the differences is that one of the things we're essentially like subtracting we're subtracting you know the cartilage and and all that stuff so when we talk about the knee we're talking about an individual that has less than should be there this is the complete opposite this is where there is essentially imagine that you added a piece to one of the bones yeah so like that's why we're talking about in a normal scenario where somebody doesn't have a structural meaning hard bone something that cannot be affected in any way other than surgic by surgical means yeah there there there's a reason for modern science and we've never once said that there aren't situations where that stuff is completely necessary and when you're talking about the fact that there is an actual added structure of course your shoulder's not going to move right all right why shoulder i'm still stuck on more often at the shoulder, but yeah, you can have your it. hip, yeah, you can have them at the shoulder, you can have them at the hip. I mean, um, anything. You add a piece to something that's not supposed to be there, something else is going to happen. Yeah, and it's very common that we see that. Now, are there people that have this added bone deformity and don't have any symptoms? It's possible. I mean, if they don't have symptoms, I probably don't know about it anyway. Right. So, um, but for the people that have known symptoms and they have that diagnosis, it's 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 one of the few times where it's like, all right, we have to consider getting that bone off of there. We we have to consider some type of a, of a plastic, you know, cutting bone away. So, that's um, it's one of the rare instances you'll you know I wouldn't say I'm I'm defeated, but it's one of the few times where I'm saying conservative measures may not be the best bet. Now, on the other hand, when we start looking at labral tears, again, we're very quick to rush off and, oh, we have to fix the labrum. We have to fix the labrum. I was reading an interesting study that said 70% of us walk around with a labral tear and we don't even know it. So again, is the labral tear that bad to begin with? Now, again, there are times where probably the size of the labral tear, the location of the labral tear is going to matter. There have been instances where people have dislocated their hips. And when I say instances, I'm talking one or two. Um, didn't realize it was dislocated. And then the body started to reform a new acetabulum. So it shows the power of our, our system. It shows the power of what our body is willing to do. But the labrum, and we talked about it, creates stability in the hip. And it's a weight-bearing joint. And if we're squatting and if we're lunging and if we're doing all these wonderful things, we, we basically scour the labrum. And if 70% of us are walking around with torn labrums, how bad is it really? Right. And a lot of us don't know it, probably because we have, we have the functional strength to get away with it. You know, we have dynamic stabilization. So does that mean we should rush off for surgery if we have torn labrum? No. If, you, if your hip is giving out, if there's constant popping, clicking, snapping, with pain, loss of strength, Maybe. But even then, I would exhaust all conservative measures to begin with. So nothing changes, though. If someone comes in with hip pain and we find out that there's a torn labrum, that they don't want to treat surgically, I'm still checking range of motion. 
soft tissue quality. What's the strength like? So if someone comes into your into the gym and says, you know, I have this hip thing, I had an x-ray a year ago, I have a torn labrum. What how much stock do you put into that torn labrum? Very little. You know? And not because I not because I, you know, think that they're imagining pain or that because but if they're it kind of like I kind of I go through a similar I mean I don't have again the diagnostic ability that you have but it's a very similar process can you move does your pain continue you know and and you were saying weakness and stuff okay like are you weaker than you were when you started did you start moving more and you got weaker which is a, a giant sign of something is wrong really wrong yeah. because that is the exact opposite of what should happen um, you know, or do you have pain because you're deconditioned and you just also happen to have a labral tear? Yeah. And then we also have to pay attention to, you know, more often than not when people have a labral tear, it's either going to be in the groin or it's going to be in the middle of the butt cheek, which is where our posterior labrum is located. So the posterior acetabulum. So if someone points outside of those two areas, right, the labrum is probably not the, the pain generator. And we, we have to recognize that. So again... I'm still looking at the impairments. So I'm still, you know, if there's no acute traumatic event, what's the soft tissue quality? What's the range of motion like? Can their hip rotate? So anytime you can work on hip mobility drills, anytime that you can focus on soft tissue pliability, gain range of motion in all three planes, and start strengthening yourself in all three planes, we build up tissue resilience, adaptation, and work capacity. So let me ask you real quick, and I, I won't have you go too deep into this. I don't, I don't know. Um, if somebody has a slight labral tear and they try to go through regular strength and conditioning, what are the chances that they're going to do any sort of, assuming they're not doing anything nuts, any sort of massive damage to that labrum? Like to the point where they wouldn't have needed surgery and now they do. Minimal. Exactly. Okay, that's kind of what I figured. Minimal. That's how you know, I always... And, and especially, too, if, you know, like a lot of people say, well, I have this hip thing, I can't jump. You can't jump. Like, if you do, like, a, a squat jump, you know, right. not, not very high, or even a low box jump, you're leaving the ground on two feet, you're landing on two feet. You know, and assuming your base of support is where it should be and you're not shifting off of that leg, very safe exercise to do. Mm-hmm. A drop jump. You know, or a depth jump, that's another one. You know, very, very safe to do. Now, if you said, I enjoy doing single leg box jumps, I'd say. Okay, eh. right. And that puts a lot more pressure on it. But again, we just, we, we got to be a little more cautious. We got to play it a little safe. But again, we're not getting to the point where we're going to allow this hip to decondition. We're right. Gonna, we're going to push you. We're going to figure out where your, your deficiency lie. And we're going to make those stronger. Right. You know, but again, it's still a non-negotiable of we want to get your range of motion back and we have to build your strength back up so you can perform. Right. And that's exact and the only reason I necessarily brought that up is because like so you really doing a goblet squat or doing a, you know, a split squat, a lunge, a deadlift, whatever. Like those things are not going to make a already existing labral tear Worse enough that if you didn't need surgery, now you do. So you might as well try them, and you might as well try and work on building up strength and see if that gets rid of the issue. It's like you have the patient that comes in, and 
you know, oh, my surgeon said, you know, don't squat because it's bad for my knees. It's like, well, can you squat? Yep. Does it hurt your knees? Then don't worry about it. Right. If it doesn't hurt, keep doing it. Right. You know, we know there are certain movements that probably add more stress to the area, but we don't know what the body's capable of until we push it. Right. And most people just aren't willing to push it. You know, and that that's... And I, I started to, to mention it last week because some people don't recognize this, but it all this that we're talking about going from pain to no pain to getting full range of motion to soft tissue pliability to, to performance, it's a process. It's mm-hmm. a journey. It's an experience. It's never here today, gone tomorrow. So we have to understand there are going to be some ups and downs in that process. However... It's like the stock market, you know, even though there may be some downtimes in the stock market, you know, over the long run, it's going to be a huge benefit. So again, you have to look at this stuff as a long-term investment. It's never just what can I accomplish in the first three weeks? You know, now it's where do I need to be in two years? You know, chances are you're going to be bigger muscle wise. You know, you're going to have some muscle hypertrophy. You're probably going to be stronger. You're going to have more muscular endurance. You're probably going to have better cardiovascular endurance. So, you know, it's, it's, when you're in the chaos, it sucks. When you're in pain, it sucks, and you can't see that far ahead. But again, you have to lay out that plan in place, and you have to just follow that plan and trust that it's going to get you there. Yeah. You know, and assuming there's no unforeseen problems or, or uh, advanced speed bumps that we have to get over, we generally adapt and we thrive, and we just have to be willing to get there. So quite quite often. We just uh, we're not willing to take that next step. So, and as long as we're willing to do so, our body will generally thank us. Yep. So, all right. Any? Uh, I think that's enough. I mean, I talked a lot, so you know, your your vocal cords got a little bit of a break today. <laughs> no, I I think that we hit a pretty we hit a pretty good amount of things. I mean, like I said, we've talked a lot about we kind of rehashed a lot of stuff that we've talked about when talking about the back, the knee, you know, and because a lot of those similar things cause very similar, the same, present the same way in different parts of the body. It just depends on what's weaker, what's stronger can affect whether it affect, whether it presents here or here. So no, I think we, we hit most of it. You guys know the drill. If you guys have questions, my uh, email is in the uh, bio. Also, the link to uh, Ross's uh, Fit for Life Facebook page where he does a an Ask Ross Everything uh, every Thursday night at 7.30. So if you have questions about that, jump on there, reach out to us, uh, and we'd be happy to answer them. All right, guys. So until next week, we'll catch you later. Take care.